All right, well, good morning, everybody. It is always great to, to be with you all and to be with our church family. And I feel like I particularly felt that today when we sang uh, Happy Birthday to Kim. It's just, that's, just, that's such a family thing to do. Uh, and it just kind of you know, reminds us that we are a church family. And, uh, and today we're going to be in 1 Peter 2. And what I want to look at today is who we are as a church. And what does that mean? What does that mean that we're supposed to do? What does it tell us that we're supposed to do? Who we are as a church. And as you guys turn there, 1 Peter chapter 2, I want to share with you my experience when I first became a dad. Um, when I remember when Calvin was born, uh, my oldest son, I was holding him. Uh, I didn't think I was his dad for a little while. It didn't quite sink in. Uh, a little bit later, he was, he was sitting on the floor. This is before he could crawl, before he could walk. Well, obviously, because he can't crawl. Um, and I was just looking at him and say, and just thinking, like, wait, wait, wait. I'm still that guy's dad? Uh, flash forward a little bit when he started asking questions. And when he started asking me questions, a uh, thought flashed where I, I thought, well, maybe his parents would explain that to him. And I'm like, oh, wait. <laughs> That's, that's not going to happen unless I do it. It took some time to sink in, but I knew, conceptually, and it t- took some time to get into my heart, but I knew conceptually that I was his dad. And if I was his dad, I needed to act like his dad. I needed to be there. I needed to teach him, to guide him. And this is what I want to talk about today, that, that knowing who you are as a Christian is going to form what you do. Uh, and the problem with, the, with what, the way we think sometimes, the problem of, of being in this world is that we get sidetracked. We get distracted. There's a lot of things that, that we start to look at. Uh, we start to, to think about our, our jobs. We start to think about money. Um, uh, we start to look at relationships, health, our, our, our own houses. We start to look at all these things that, that are, are earthly and not necessarily bad. These are all blessings from the Lord. But we start to focus on the earthly things and we start to lose perspective about who we are, about, about our eternal identity that we have in Christ. And we start to lose that eternal heavenly mindset. And I think nowhere do we have such a powerful reminder than when we send out missionaries. Uh, we know next week we're, we're saying goodbye to the Turners uh, as much as I would not like to. Uh, but my heart is, is rejoicing because I know that there are people who are going to be hearing the gospel. Um, and, and, it is, and that disruption in our church body, it's a good disruption. It reminds us that we are not long for this world, that our church body here is meant to go out, and we will be back together when we go back to our home, to our, our, our heavenly home. And right now we are not at home. We are strangers here. The, the Turners are going, to be, are, are going to be what we perceive foreigners in Albania. Well, we are foreigners now. We are foreigners in this world. We are foreigners uh, in a world that's hostile towards God. And, and being foreigners, being these strangers to the world, means that we do not belong to the world. We don't belong to the world. We belong to God. And these truths have implications on, on our life. It tells us how we need to live. It means something to us. It's not just something that's in the Bible and, and we live our lives apart from it. It affects how we live our life. And this is what we're going to be focusing on, uh, on in our passage. We're going to be looking in 1 Peter chapter 2, and we're going to, we need that reminder of who we are. 
We need this reminder because who we are informs what we do. And I'm going to see our identity in, in two parts. It's really two sides of the same coin. Um, one side of the coin is that we are people of God. And we're going to see that in our passage in verses 9 through, through 10 in chapter 2. We are people of God. And the second part, the other side of the coin, is that we are strangers in this world. Strangers to the world. And that's going to be verses 11 through 12. So read with me. We're in 1 Peter 2. Uh, we're focusing on, on verses 9 through 12, but I'm going to start reading from uh, verse 4. Chapter 2, verse 4 in 1 Peter. And coming to him as to a living stone, which has been rejected by men, but is, a choice, and but is choice and precious in the sight of God, you also, as living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house for a holy priesthood, to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For this is contained in Scripture. Behold, I lay in Zion a, cho a choice stone, a precious cornerstone, and he who believes in him will not be disappointed. This precious value, then, is for you who believe. But for those who disbelieve, the stone which the builders rejected, this became the very cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and rock of offense. For they stumble because they are, disappointed to, they are disobedient to the word, and to this doom they were also appointed. But you, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. For you were once not a people, but now you are the people of God. You had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Beloved, I urge you as aliens and strangers to abstain from fleshly lust, which war against the soul. Keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles, so that in the thing in which they slander you as evildoers, they may, because of your good deeds, as they observe them, glorify God in the day of visitation. Pray with me. Father, we come before you and ask you that you would clear our minds of earthly distractions, that you would help us to look at this passage and see how you see us. Lord, help us to see that identity, that, that we are yours and we are not of the world. Father, I just pray that you would, um, that you would use a weak vessel like me to proclaim your excellencies to this to this people, so that this church could, uh, could proclaim your excellencies to the world. Praise Jesus' name. Amen. Well, this is a, a dense passage. Uh, there's, there's a lot in here. And to fully appreciate it, just do a quick uh, fill-in of the context. Uh, Peter's writing to believers that are living in the area that is now modern-day Turkey. And these believers are facing... Uh, certain persecutions. Um, we, we know that they're facing increasing persecutions, and, and Peter is simply writing to encourage them. And when we get to chapter 2 in this, in this uh, epistle, Peter's reminding the church that the believers, that the believers who he's writing to, are built together upon the precious cornerstone of Jesus Christ. But while these believers see Christ as that precious cornerstone, we read that the unbelievers, in verse 8, 
see Christ as a stone of stumbling, as a rock of offense. And I was thinking about that, that these unbelievers see Christ in such a different way. And, uh, and I thought about when I go hiking, uh, particularly when I go hiking with my son, who can hike now. He's, um, and when he hikes, he looks at rocks, and he takes rocks, and he says, Dad, can I add these rocks to my collection? And my first response is, you don't have a collection. It's, it's going to end up on the floor at home. And, uh, but he says, no, but I really want it. It looks so cool. And, and to him, that rock is so interesting. There's, there's something about that rock, or sometimes a dirt clod, um, <laughs> that, that he wants to keep. Uh, but to me, I, I see that rock as, okay, this is something that's going to be on the floor at home that I'm going to step on barefooted, and I'm going to be very angry at that rock. Well, that difference in how Calvin sees that rock and how I see that rock is very much how we see Christ and how unbelievers see Christ. Unbelievers, they see Christ as someone who's going to offend them. They see Christ as some, some, someone they're going to trip over, turn back at, and curse. And so they do not believe, they disobey the word, as it says at the end of verse 8. And so this is where our study begins. This is where we get to verse, verse 9. In verse 9, Peter is going to build this contrast between these unbelievers who are cursing God and, 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 and the church who are chosen by God. And what Peter is going to do in verse 9, he's going, to, he's going to identify the church with these four separate titles. And each of these four separate titles, he, he borrows from the Old Testament. These are Old Testament descriptions of Israel. Now, before we go further with this, I just want to be super duper uber, I guess will be the next one after that, clear, that the church does not replace Israel. Okay, church is not replacing Israel here. We're looking at these passages. The, the church is going to be given, is going to partake in the promises given to Israel, but it is not replacing Israel. I mean, what kind of promise would that be? If God says to Israel back in the Old Testament, Here's my promise, and I'm going to fulfill that promise by giving it to somebody else. Right, that's like me promising my wife a trip to Europe and saying, I'm going to fulfill that promise by giving a trip to Disney World to our kids, which is actually not so far from the truth. So <laughs> sorry about that, hon. <laughs> but, but God still has a plan for Israel. God is still going to fulfill those promises to Israel, but Peter's taking these great titles, these, these, these great identities, these identities with such privilege and promise, and bringing them to bear on the church. So the first one, when we get to verse 9, he says, but you, now that you in verse 9 is a plural. It's um, you all, or, or I try to say how the people in the South say it, y'all, I think. I was trying to say it the other day, and I was saying it wrong, so I'm not from the South, I'm, I'm from SoCal. Um, <laughs> But you, as in all of you, are a chosen race. Now, this is in stark contrast to what we see in verse 8. In verse 8, they are disobedient to the word. To the word. They, are, they stumble over, over Christ, the cornerstone. And to this, it says that they were appointed. But the church, Christ, or God deals differently with the church. See, if, if you're a believer, if you're in the church, you're chosen by God, you're chosen by God to believe. You're chosen by God to be part of his people, part of his chosen race. And that word for race there is, is, 
I mean, since the definition is a group of people united by a common trait. So um, we're not talking about uh, the color of your skin. We're not talking about your ethnicity. Uh, what unifies believers from all races oh, is that, that song um, I'm blanking on it right now. Yellow, red, yellow, black, and white. Jesus loves the children, yeah. yeah was it? Red, yellow, black, and white, all, all are precious in the sight. There's no brown in there, by the way. <laughs> but, um, but we get tacos, so. <laughs> what unifies believers, what unifies everyone from all these tribes, tongues, and nation is that we are chosen by God. It goes beyond our color of skin. It goes beyond what country we're from. It's we're chosen by God. Now, this is a dec- the doctrine of election. Now, I had a hard time with this particular doctrine uh, growing up. I remember in high school, for well, even past high school, I would say, God chose me. I can't get around that. It's in the scripture. God chose me because I chose him. Now, that's what I used to say a while back. That is not accurate to what the scripture teaches, and that puts man on a pedestal. You know, if you say that, if you say that God chose, chose me because I chose him, you're making man to be sovereign over God. It, it makes God to wait on man, and it gives man more credit than man deserves. We could never choose God. And you say, wait a minute, uh, when I look at the Bible, uh, the Bible calls people to believe. Right? And we, we read that in what? In John 3.16? Whoever believes will not perish but have everlasting life. And I'm saying, well, God chose us. And you say, well, which one is it? And uh, we, we dealt with this before. We saw this in, and when we went through the Gospel of John. It's, it's both of those things. We can't decipher, we can't go back and, and go beyond what the Scripture tells us. The Scripture teaches us both. That God chose us and that he calls everyone to obedience. He does not have to operate under our human logic. His ways are not our ways. And the argument with God about our freedom of choice versus God's sovereignty ultimately ends with what Peter, uh, what Paul writes in Romans. Who are you, O man? Who are you, O man? Who answers back to God? All we could do is praise our infinite God. And there is such peace when you stop wrestling with that and you accept the scripture for what it says. So, another question that comes up. We are a chosen race. Another question that we could say is, then why choose us? And this is why I love this doctrine of election. Why choose us? Why choose these believers? And I think we should go back to Deuteronomy. Because like I said, this is the Old Testament. right? Uh, Peter's bringing back these, these phrases from the Old Testament. And in Deuteronomy 7, you don't have to turn there. Uh, I'll, I'll read it to you guys. In Deut- Deuteronomy 7, this is Moses talking to Israel before they enter the Promised Land. He says this, this is 7, verse 6, chapter 7, verse 6. For you are a holy people to the Lord your God, Lord your God has chosen you to be his people for his own possession. We'll see that phrase again later. Out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. 
The Lord did not set his love on you, nor choose you, because you were more in number than any of the peoples, for you were the fewest of all peoples. But because the Lord loved you and kept the oath which he swore to the forefathers. God didn't choose Israel because God has something to gain from choosing Israel. God chose Israel because he loved Israel and, and, he was, and he's a faithful God. And we see that same reasoning in, in, in the New Testament. God chose us because he loved us. I read in Ephesians 2, with the, love, with, with the great love with which he loved us, he made us alive together with Christ. What was the motivation there? The doctrine of election starts with the love of God for his people. That's where it starts. And, and it completely strips anything, of, anything you could offer. God didn't choose you because you had something good that he wanted. He didn't choose you because you could add to his kingdom. He chose you simply because he loves you. And if you struggle with the doctrine of election, the doctrine of God choosing, you need to start with God's love. Why, did, why, why does God love you? It has nothing to do with you. It has to do with his great grace, with the love that he loved you with. You didn't earn that love. And this is why that contrast is so great. We look at the unbelievers. These unbelievers who, who are going to be judged for, their, for disobeying the word, and we look at believers. We should have been with them, but God loved us, and he chose us for himself. We are his chosen race. Now, bring this back into the context. Uh, Peter is, is talking to these, um, uh, the, these believers. They're going through trial. And the first thing that, that Peter tells them in verse 9 is, but you are chosen. Saying, you guys are chosen by God because God loves you. That's the first thing he goes to. It's an encouragement for those who are suffering. It's an encouragement for those who are persecuted. Well, Peter continues, to the, uh, and he goes to the Old Testament titles. We saw that he, we're a chosen race, and now he says we are a royal, royal priesthood and a holy nation. And this comes directly from Exodus 19.5. Exodus 19.5, this is when uh, Israel goes to Sinai. Moses is on Mount Sinai. God is telling Moses what to tell the people, and God tells him this. If you will in, indeed obey my voice and keep my, uh, my covenant, then you shall be my own possession among all the peoples of the earth. Uh, yeah, all the earth is mine. It will be my special treasure. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. So this is what God wanted Israel to be. This, he wanted Israel um, to be this, this kingdom of priests. He wanted Israel to be a blessing to the nations. The, the, the idea was that people were to look at Israel... And, and see how they lived, to see the amazing works God did in, in their midst, and know that Yahweh, the God of Israel, is the one true God. This was, was what God wanted them to do. But they forfeited this. We, we, we're reading in Judges, um, in, our, in our study of Judges, that we start to see that, that slow spiral, that degradation, and that ultimately, that, that culminates with the rejection of the Messiah, right? the rejection of Christ. 
So they are not those kingdom of priests. They will be when they repent and they believe. Like I said, God still has a plan for Israel. But in the New Testament, believers are those priests now. The book of Hebrews tells us that we have direct access to God. You know, no group of people had that. No, uh, even in Israel. Israel, they had their high priest. The high priest could go into the Holy of Holies once a year. But we could approach the throne of God with all confidence, with full assurance of faith. Because we have direct access to God because of our perfect high priest. We are those priests. And we are royal because we represent the king of kings to the world. Uh, lately I was watching um, these uh, shows. That, they're a little bit political, but they have a lot of like presidents and ambassadors talking to each other. And I always thought it was really interesting how ambassadors carry the authority of, of, of their country or carry the authority of their king or whoever it is. Uh, if there's a problem, if there's an issue, the, the president first talks to the ambassador to get it all sorted out, and he has that authority that, that's given to them by his country. Well, we are those ambassadors to the world. We are going out into the world, calling people to repentance, calling people to have reconciliation through Jesus Christ, and we are continuing the ministry of our king until he returns. This is what it is to be a royal priest, to be part of that royal priesthood. And it comes with a privilege. The privilege is we have access to God. The, the responsibility aspect is that we need to proclaim that. We need to proclaim who he is. Let us not neglect such a high calling as Israel did before. We have that privilege of being a royal priesthood. And, and if we're, we're, we are these royal priesthood, that, that implies something else. We can only be ambassadors to this world if we belong to another nation, right? if we belong elsewhere. You can't be ambassadors. I mean, I can't be a U.S. ambassador to the U.S. It just sounds, you know, well, kind of fitting, I guess, but uh, as far as inefficiency. But we are part of another nation. This is the third title. So we are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, and a holy nation. Now, there's two ways you can think of, of holy. Uh, you can think of holy in the sense of living holy, in the sense of that progressive sanctification that, um, uh, that we, we, we abstain from sin, we fight sin, and the Lord continues to sanctify us, to remove sin, to make us more like his son every day. Uh, I think what's, what's in mind here, because this is an identity here, you are a holy nation, and I think what's in mind here is being holy. Being holy is to be set apart. It's to stand before God, knowing that your sins have been forgiven, knowing that you have the righteousness of, your, of His Son on you, that you are set apart from condemnation, set apart from the world, and are washed and cleansed by His blood. Church, we are that holy nation. We do not belong to this world we belong in his nation. And we've been bought, bought with a price. Now, let me apply that really quick. What does that mean for us? Uh, it means that your citizenship goes beyond this world. Uh, if, if you're an American, 
I believe your citizenship ends when you die, right? I hope they don't tax you after we die. Well, they could, I don't care. Uh, but our citizenship in heaven goes beyond this life. And, and there is such relief in that. I mean, nothing that can be done to you could take away that privilege of being that citizen. We could be harassed here. We could have our, our earthly belongings, our land taken away. We could be taxed. We could even be exiled. What's the worst thing that could do? Kill us? We're still God's chosen people. This this identity sticks with us. It goes beyond this life. And there's a flip side to that. If we are God's chosen people, if we're a holy nation, then we we do not belong here. In verse 11, we'll, we'll get to this in a moment, but in verse 11, Peter calls his readers aliens and strangers. Aliens and strangers in the NES. This, these two words together really mean temporary resident. There is nothing permanent for God's people here on this world. Now, the world looks very different once you become a believer, doesn't it? Once you become a believer, the world loses its charm. Right? You're, you're looking for something better now as a believer. You're longing to be home. You're longing to be with your Savior. And when you become a citizen of God's holy nation, when you place your trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, there's nothing on earth you want to claim, and there's nothing that the world can offer you that surpasses the riches of Christ. We are not of this world. We are aliens and strangers. And we long for the world to be with our Father, to be with our Savior. And Peter ends this this list of titles, this list of privileges of of who we are, Peter ends by telling us that we are his possession. And we, this just causes us to remember that we were bought with a price. I think of Titus. Titus 2 says, Jesus gave himself for us to redeem us from every lawless deed and to purify for himself a people for his own possession. You are his own possession because Jesus gave himself for you. That Jesus gave himself for the church. And sisters, if, if you're in the church today, if you're part of his chosen, if, if you're his possession, that means you belong to him. And what a great and merciful, merciful privilege that is. Remember where you were when he, before he saved you. You were dead in your sin and trespasses. You were enemies of God. You were sons of disobedience. That's who you were. And God saves you and brings you into his nation and brings you to be his own possession. It's it's such mercy in our identity as Christians. And Peter makes a little hymn out of this. He uses some verses from Hosea. And in verse 10, he says, For you once were not a people, but now... You are the people of God. You had not received mercy. When we were not a people, we did not receive mercy. But now that we are the people of God, now you have received mercy. Part of understanding our identity as a church, our identity even as Christians, understanding how much we need Christ. And it goes back to that contrast between verse 8 and verse 9. The only reason we're in verse 9, if you're a believer today, the only reason why you could claim to be a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own possession, the only reason is because Christ died for you. And God saved you. 
if you're going to take anything out from these titles, uh, take this. Your identity, your identity is only possible because of his character. Your identity is only possible because of the character of God. If, it's only possible because God was so merciful to you. Your identity as in being in the church and being God's is only possible, possible because of his grace, of who he is. And now we get the privilege of be- becoming God's people. So this is who we are. And Peter continues in verse 9 and gives us the purpose of this. Why are we a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a, a holy nation, a people for his own possessions? The purpose of this is that we, we proclaim his excellencies. Read with, with me in verse 9. So that you may proclaim the excellencies of him. That is that you are to proclaim his character. You are to proclaim his amazing actions, the, the, the glorious gospel. And if you don't know what to say right off the bat, keep reading verse 9. Look how it describes, how it describes God. It proclaims the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. You know what you talk about? All you have to talk about is what God did for you. That God saved you. That God broke those chains off you. And I have a, um, a hymn here. I'm running low on time, but I'm going to read it anyway. Uh, no, no, I can't remember. Um, we sing of this, of this hymn, and you guys could probably think of it pretty well, about us being imprisoned, about that we're fast bound in sin and nature's night. You guys know that thine eye diffused a quickening way, what ray awoke the dungeon flame with light. The chains fell off, my heart was free, I went forth and followed thee. That's what God did. And that's what we need to proclaim. And with our identity as God's people, we proclaim what he did. We proclaim his excellencies. Now the other aspect of this is uh, in verse 10, that we are strangers to the world. Now this, like I said before, this is the same side, of the, uh, two sides of the same coin. Right? You're, you could be God's people, but if you're God's people, that's going to necessitate that you're strangers to the world. And I love how Peter starts verse 11. He says, beloved, beloved. He's reminding these, these believers who are going through persecution that they have someone, they have a, a member of the church who loves them. That even though they're going, even though the world's against them, even though they're strangers going through this persecution, they still have fellow believers around the world ministering to them, encouraging them, praying for them. And it is such a precious reality of the global church. Don't underestimate how much your prayers are coveted by the persecuted. Don't underestimate how your word of encouragement affects a missionary. We are all in the church. We are all a holy nation. We're all his people. And it's just a reminder here, when he, when he calls these distant people beloved, it just lets us know how Peter feels about them. It must have, it must have been encouraging to them. So Peter says, Beloved, and he instructs them. He says, Beloved, I urge you as aliens and strangers to abstain from fleshy lusts which wage war against the soul. This fleshy lust, don't, don't just limit it to sexual sins. I know we see the word lust there and we want to say, well, that's just sexual. Fleshy is the Bible's, the, the Bible's word in the New Testament for our fallen nature that we still have. 
And if you read Galatians 5, you'll see the deeds of the flesh. And we still struggle with that. Right? We still struggle with, with jealousy, with anger, with strife. But if, if you're not in the world, if you're an alien and a stranger, we are told to abstain because that, uh, the fleshy lust, that's part of the world's culture. That's part of what they do. You as believers are not to be that. You need to be distant from that. You need to keep yourselves from that because you're not part of this world. And besides that, Peter continues and says, not only to abstain from it, but it gives you uh, uh, an idea of what these fleshy lusts do, which wage war against the soul. These lusts are like an army. Uh, and I think of the Lord of the Rings, where I don't know if you guys how much are you familiar with that, but you have all these orcs, these, these huge monsters, going into these villages, into these nations, uh, into these countries, and just demolishing these, these little towns setting everything on fire, killing everyone on sight. And this is what the fleshly lust does. It is us having a military campaign against you as a believer. And it's a battle. Uh, I, think of, um, I think of Paul's, Paul's sentiments in, in Romans 7. He, he says, uh, that the members of his body wage war against him. He says, For the good that I want, I do not do, but I practice the evil that I do not want. It's a fight. It's a battle. But we could rest assured that if, if you're in Christ, if, if you've been taken in as his chosen, and part of his holy nation, part of his royal priesthood, you have the Holy Spirit residing in you. You have the upper hand against this, these fleshly lusts, these, these military advances that go against you. Without that, we would, be, we would be slaves to sin. We would be hopeless. But now we are freed from slaves to sin and made slaves of righteousness. So go back to our passage. So being estranged of the world does mean that we abstain from our fleshly desires. We fight against those things. Uh, but it doesn't mean we become isolated. Uh, we are to be strangers to the world. We're not to be estranged from the world. Right? The, the Bible doesn't call us to go live on our, up by ourselves in the middle of the woods. We are to be in the world. And, and verse 12 says that, keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles. So where are we supposed to be? Verse 12 says, among the Gentiles. We can't stay in our little Christian bubbles. That's not what we're called to be. We're called to be aliens, and we're called to be among them. It says, Keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles, so that in the thing in which they slander you as evildoers, they may, because of your good deeds, as they observe them, glorify God in the day of visitation. Two things I want to point out here in verse 12. One is expect the hostility of the world. You are not of the world. You need to expect that the world is going to be hostile towards you. We read that in John 17. That Jesus says that the world will hate you exactly because you are not of the world. And look what they're doing to these believers. They completely invert what these believers are supposed to be. Right? These believers are supposed to be a holy nation. And the Gentiles, these unbelievers, are saying that they do evil deeds, completely twisting who they are. This is what the world wants to do to us. 
Now, that's the first thing. The second thing is, how do, we how do we respond to that hostility? If we are strangers to this world, how do we respond? And the way we respond is to continue our good deeds. Now, let me just say, that does not make a substitute for preaching the gospel. You do not evangelize by just doing good deeds. Okay? But in, in doing good deeds, you prove your character. And this is, this is one of the hardest things to do. Right? If, so, if someone is coming at you, if someone is, is being unkind to you and, and saying these things, the last thing you want to do is be nice to them. Like, I have a few zingers of my own that I want to go unleash. You almost feel justified in fighting back. But there is a, a greater honor here. We're here to honor the Lord. Right? We're here to be his holy nation, his royal priesthood. You can't do that and seek vengeance. And there's, there's another thing. We want to endure and, and not fight back, but show the good deeds for their sakes. Right? This is that, having that, that gracious behavior towards them, that, that, that we want them to, to know the Lord. So we endure not only to honor the Lord, but for their sake, so they might glorify God in the day of visitation. Now that phrase, day of visitation, there's, there's a few different interpretations of that. Um, but ultimately it means that they will eventually come to know the Lord. Because glorify, that, that verb for glorify God in the New Testament is only used in the context of believers glorifying the Lord. So we keep up our good deeds so that they may also be transformed into people of God, into strangers of the, of, uh, to the world with us. So who are we? Two things. We are the people of God, and we are the strangers of God. And because we have been chosen, we are to proclaim His excellencies, and we are to live holy lives. This is who we are as a church. This is who you are as a Christian, and this is what we need to do. So three points of application here. How does this affect your lives right now? The first thing you need to do is ask yourself, are you a stranger to the world, or are you a stranger to God? One thing, I, that one thing that we saw is that you can't be both. You can't be a stranger to the world, and you can't be part of, of the world. You can't be pe God's uh, people, and you can't be belonging to the world. One, one preacher put it this way, you can give up the world to gain heaven, or give up get heaven to gain the world. Which one do you want? If you have not obeyed the gospel, if you have not trusted Jesus as the only foundation for your salvation. Talk to someone here. If you're unsure about that, talk to someone here. We're all here to proclaim His excellencies, each one of us here who are believers. If you're unsure about that, talk to us. The second reminder that I want to say is for, for us believers um, is that we should not be getting comfortable in this life. One of the things this highlights is that we are in enemy territory. We are like soldiers going behind enemy lines. For, for believers, this world is the closest we get to hell. It shouldn't be comfortable. Instead, we need to use this opportunity to be his royal priesthood, to proclaim his excellence, to go out and call people to reconciliation, to to proclaim the gospel to them. And, and we, could, we could be a little homesick for a little longer. Right? We, we know where we're going. 
Let's try to get others so that they will glorify God along with us. And my last point of application. Lastly, being strangers to the world makes communion together so much sweeter. Now, after I say this, and especially once we sing happy birthday, and I was like, ah, oh, this is such a, such a great thing to be. That, that When we go out in the world, we, we are strangers to the world. We are among people who are going to be hostile to us. But when we come here, when we gather, when we're surrounded by the, our fellow citizens of heaven, it is a taste of what, we'll be like, of what we're going to be experiencing in our heavenly home. It's like gathering with family in a hostile place. You know, we're in a little room having dinner together, and, and that's all that matters. We don't have to be defensive when we talk to each other. Rather, we, we encourage each other to continue to fight the good fight. We tend to each other's wounds. Right? This is a hospital. We come here and, and, and we, we help each other. And we praise the Lord for his faithfulness. This is a temporary fix for homesickness. If you're wishing to be, the, to be with the Lord, the church is, is the place to be until the Lord calls you home. Let us not neglect the gathering of the saints, but let us gather together and praise our Lord. Let's pray. Father, we look at what you have done, that you've called us out of this world to be, to be your children, to be your own, to be, to be your holy nation. Lord, and we know that we do not deserve any of it. We know that we belong with the unbelievers, but if not but your grace, Father, your mercy that you have shown to us, the love that you have shown to us. Lord, we give you all the praise and glory. And I ask that as, as we go out, that we will be reminded that we are those strangers in the world and that we have a mission here. Lord, help us to be bold, to proclaim, to proclaim your excellencies to the world around us. Father, we praise you. We love you. In Jesus' name, amen.